I really dislike heights. And the older I get, uh, the worse it actually gets. When I was a kid, I'd jump off tall things and high dives, high dives at the public swimming pool or, you know, 50, 60 foot rocks at Lake Powell and Lake Havasu out west. A roof or two, go on the tallest roller coasters because I was more scared of, of, of being scared. But, but in my older age, I'm getting less and less brave. And there's a place around here that, that reminds me of my fear, at least on an annual basis, the Chesapeake Bay Bridge. When I'm driving over that bridge, I look to my left and I think that doesn't look so good. And I look to my right and I think that doesn't look so good either. And this thought comes into my brain, this, this anxiety comes over me. And I think if I suddenly lose control and go right, I'm dead. If I lose control and go to the left, I'm dead. Falling off either side of that bridge ends up in the same result. And thus my stomach churns when I'm driving over that bridge. I, I, I white knuckle it. I, I, I turn off the radio, turn off the radio, and I yell at my kids, be quiet, don't talk. <laughs> right is death, left is death, don't die. I'm not the only one that struggles with this. There is a company that is in place designed for people that struggle with. Kent Island Express sits at the base of the Chesapeake Bridge and a person traveling towards the Chesapeake Bridge can, can park their car, meet at a designated location. They climb into the passenger seat. A complete stranger gets into their driver's seat and for $25, drives them over the bridge. And when they come back for $25 more, drives them back over the bridge so that they can close their eyes and try to relax as they're going across this bridge. Nearly 6,000, well, actually over 6,000 people now use this service every single year. They can't handle the thought that goes through my brain, left not good, right not good. This is just not good. Now, I can tell you that I have never used this service. It's not that bad, and I'm too cheap to use it anyways. But, but many, many people do. We are looking at the story the next two weeks that highlights that reality in our lives. It is a story that illustrates the old saying, the devil doesn't care which ditch he gets you in, just so long as you are in a ditch, he is happy. And I believe, I believe that probably most of us in life have been like the man that Martin Luther, the great reformer, spoke of. A drunk man who had spent the night drinking and now is riding home on a path on his horse. And he was pulling his reins so hard to the left. And before he knew it, he had slipped right out of the saddle and he was in a ditch on the side of that path. And so he climbed back up 
onto the horse and, and he pulled the rein so hard to the right to avoid the other ditch that he ended up in the other ditch on the other side. I would say that, that probably many of us are in that boat, two ditches. So open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. Jesus has told several stories already in Luke chapter 15. This is the third story he's about to tell. Jesus continued, he continued to tell his stories. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country. The citizen sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he, when he came to his senses, verse 17, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off. His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around his son and kissed his son. And then the son said to him, the speech that he had prepared, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father wasn't listening to him. The father wouldn't hear it. And he said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. They had a party. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you were always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Two brothers, two ditches, one extreme grace. I'm going to suspect or propose to you that we are all both brothers and that we've all been in both ditches. But today, I will look at the brother that we in society talk about the most, the first brother. 
He actually wasn't the focus of Jesus's story in this, uh, in this parable. But I'm going to look at the first brother, Pastor Matthew, who had his birthday yesterday, by the way, 33 years old. We'll talk about the brother just that Jesus wanted was the, or that Jesus made the primary focus. So come back next Sabbath. But I'm going to look at the first brother, the first ditch, and it is appropriately so, appropriately so because this brother is referred to as the prodigal son, the prodigal son. And by all definitions within the church of what a prodigal is, that is me, or that was me, I should say. Now, I want to share with you first, though, the dictionary definition of what a prodigal is and what actually the original Greek definition even is, is a person that spends either wastefully or one who spends extravagantly. Now, I want you to keep those definitions in mind for later. But if you've grown up around the church, you've come to understand that when someone is referred to as a prodigal, they are describing a person that has willfully wandered away from God. And we often think of this person as having done the really bad, everyone can see, everyone knows about public sins. By this definition in our church world, I was a prodigal. Raised in a Christian home, Christian parents, they're a bit nominal, but still Christians. Christian education my entire life. I read Uncle Arthur's bedtime stories, my Bible friends. Every Sabbath afternoon, I heard the words, hey, mom, dad, your story hour is on. I always heard that. For those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, that's insider language within our denomination of the children's stories we were exposed to as, uh, as children. But starting in seventh grade until I was into my 19th year of life, I went a very different way. What we would describe as the prodigal way. I actually had some sins written down, but, but you can see maybe I scribbled some things out there because I thought my kids might be paying attention to this. And so I'll just, I'll just say that all the sins you associate with being a prodigal, I was a part of those things. The Bible refers to the son as squandering his wealth in wild living. I didn't have wealth to squander, but, but I did whatever a poor teenager could in, in wild living. And I experienced, I experienced in my own heart and in my own life what this young man did. I ended up in a pigsty, in a mess of life. Whenever I share my testimony, just a little side note, I have well-intentioned people, and I know they're well-intentioned, but, but they almost come up and and affirm me for the way I've lived my life. Oh, it's so good you have a story to tell people so that you can relate to people. No, no. There is nothing good about willfully living in sin, whether public or private. Living in sin is miserable. It is horrible. It is a driving across the Bay Bridge over and over and over again and looking always to the left and the right and thinking that's no good. You know, people say, well, but you can relate to people. Here's what I want you to know. My wife, Christina, never once did the things that I did on that public scale of things. And she has more non-Christian friends than I do. You don't have to wander that path to relate to your friends. 
You just have to love people and people will be grateful for that. But I'm not ever, ever happy about how I lived. It still hurts my heart. And I will tell you this, there are still scars that I know will be there in some capacity until the day that Jesus comes and makes me whole again. I look forward to that day. Now, the way that we normally describe prodigal and even what I just described, some of you will say, well, I'm definitely not a prodigal. But I suspect sitting in this room right now, we have prodigals, possibly all of us, and maybe even right now, we are prodigals. But here's, here's something I've learned in my lifetime, that, that my prodigal ways didn't just completely go away with me accepting Jesus or, or even becoming a pastor. That I still have moments, I still have times where I have chosen, not, not just slipped up, but, but chosen to, to drift into sin, to, to linger into sin, to rationalize sin in some way. And I would guess that some of you have too. When I read the story Jesus told in Luke chapter 15, I see a kid that, that, that jumped into sin. He slept with prostitutes after all. That is what his older brother tells us. So we then define prodigals as only those that do those big public sins and they have these big wanderings and oh, then they can come back. But when I read the Bible, I see that there is not a degree of sin. James chapter two and verse 10 tells us, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at even just one point is guilty of breaking the entire law. Is guilty of breaking the entire law. Pastor Matt had a great sermon on January 15th. It's on YouTube if you wanna go back and watch it about this text, Faith Over Favoritism. The Bible also tells me in 1 John chapter three and verse four that everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin, the Bible says, is lawlessness. The Bible doesn't say that only the real bad sins people can see are lawlessness. All sin is lawlessness. The ditch that the younger brother is, is, is in is lawlessness, but, but our sins are ditches that we are in too, and they are lawlessness. And, and when we rationalize them or try to excuse them or, or think that we're hiding them, we are living in that prodigal way. We mentioned prostitutes of this, that this younger brother hung out with, and that is definitely lawlessness. That would definitely make someone a prodigal if we heard that story. Through most of history, adultery has been easily accepted as a sinful prodigal behavior. We talked about homosexual sex and premarital sex. The Bible teaches the, us that these are sinful prodigal behaviors. But, but, but we rarely talk about lust. I wonder how many of us accepted lust, not, maybe not as okay, but as, as rationalized, part of who we are. In fact, I just read an article in a public uh, uh, mag a secular magazine, but it was talking about in the surveys they've done, how many Christians are now accepting aspects of lust as a regular part of their lives, a rationalized part of, of their lives and just who we are as, as beings. We've been going through the pandemic of COVID, but there's a pandemic of this lawlessness even in our midst. This is just one example. Let me share with you a 2021 study from Barna 
uh, Barna Christian Resource Group. And, and what caught my eye about this study was how focused it was and how penetrating it was uh, to me. The study was crazy because they studied 1,300 college students. Now you might say, well, why is that? We would expect some sort of level of of this and that 1,300 college students. But these were 1,300 college students that were not just college students, but they were 1,300 college students at, at conservative Christian colleges. But not just 1,300 college students at conservative Christian colleges, but 1,300 college students at conservative Christian college students who were active leaders in either their local church or, or campus ministries at their school. And here's what the study found. College students at conservative Christian colleges that were active and leading ministries on campus or in their local church. 89% of the young men surveyed watched porn at least occasionally. 61% viewed it at least weekly and 24% watched it daily. Of the women in the survey, 51% of this group watched porn at least occasionally. 70% 70% of them watched pornography with, had watched pornography within the last 12 months. Leaders, Christian young people who, who love Jesus but, but are in this, this rut. We have this pandemic and we're in ditches like this in the church even as we're sitting there. Another example of us being in some of these ditches is the ditch of lawlessness, lingering in this ditch of prodigal living. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 15 that the younger brother, that the younger son asked his dad for his, his, his money, his inheritance early, his inheritance early. In that culture, such a request is, is tantamount to stealing from your parents. I mean, to make such a request is, is is, is insulting to your parents. It, I imagine in my mind's eye within that subculture, it would be like a kid holding a gun to their parents and saying, now give me your money so I can go out and hang out with my friends. Of course, such an action, we would say, man, that is prodigal living in our day and in our, and in our lives. Stealing thievery definitely are prodigal ditches that, that our people are in. But, but I suspect in this room and, and that all over North America, there are people sitting in churches that have the prodigal problem of stealing. Sitting in church every week. Research out of the North American Division. That is the institution, for those of you that are un, not familiar with it, that encompasses all the Seventh-day Adventist churches in the United States and Canada and in Guam and Micronesia. What they report is that only, or that there, are, there is one third of the church in North America that never marks on their tithe envelopes giving as tithe. One third, 33% that never indicate giving as tithe. The Bible tells us that that is stealing. If we don't give tithe, we are just as much prodigal thieves as the prodigal son who holds up the local grocery store, the local liquor store. Malachi 3.8, God said to the people, why are you robbing me? And they said, how are we robbing you? He says, in not giving your tithes and your offerings. But, but maybe where more of us even live in that, because some of us may say, well, we mark always some tithe on there. 
A study in North American Division in 2015 by Robert McIver for Ministry of Magazine found that givers, that, that, that households gave on average $804 a year to tithe. Not per month, a year to tithe. But, but that, that based on the, the, I guess you'd say actuary tables, the tables of, of, of what people make in the United States and in specific areas, that the actual amount based on income statistics should be $1,906 per person. If we're not giving an honest 10%, we are in that ditch of lawlessness. We sit in the church, but, but we are still prodigals. The prodigals aren't just those that we can see that are, that are doing all the bad things. We are still prodigals. Y'all, we could continue. We could talk about the way that we take care of our bodies. We could talk about the things we think about divorce. We could talk about Romans chapter one and verse 32, in which the Bible tells us that, that not only are we in the sinful state if we do these things, but if we approve of those who do these sins. We could talk about covetousness. This is one that has been convicting my heart recently. I've been reading through Patriarchs and Prophets, and I read this line that, that pierced me about, about coveting, this, the ditch of coveting. Covetousness of all sins is one of the most common and the most lightly regarded. Covetousness is an evil of gradual development. Covetousness abounds. And I, what a great writer this is. Everywhere its slimy track is seen. It creates discontent and dissension in families. It excites envy and hatred in the poor against the rich. It prompts the grinding oppression of the rich towards the poor. And this evil exists not only, in, not in the world alone, but it is expressed within the church itself. You know, I let myself live in that ditch sometimes that lawless ditch, that prodigal ditch of coveting. If you had looked at my life from that stretch between 12 years old and 18 years or 18 plus years old, you would say, yeah, that kid is definitely a prodigal. But if being a prodigal is accepting the lawless ditch we are sitting in, and just continuing or thinking that we're getting away with it or, or justifying it or saying it's only a little sin or saying, you know, it doesn't really matter to God or society has changed, so I don't need to worry about it anymore, then we are wrong. Romans chapter six and verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death. It doesn't say the big public sins, the wages of the big public sins is death. It doesn't say the, the, the sins that no one knows about are okay says the wages of all sin is death. The wages of sin is falling off either side of the Chesapeake Bridge. Prodigal, by the negative definition of the church, of churchgoers, is wild living, as the New Testament version describes it, or as it's translated in the Greek, debaucherous living. It is death living which is why I am so grateful and why I am so thankful and why I am so happy and why I can say with rejoicing today that by the truest definition of this word, there is actually only one prodigal in this story. And that is the father who represents our savior, Jesus Christ. That is the only true prodigal.
You see, the Bible tells us that, that, that the son went home expecting punishment. The son went home expecting a diminished position. The son went home a servant, expecting to be a servant, not a son. But the Bible tells us that, that while he was still a long way off, that the father saw him and that the father was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around his son and he began to kiss his son. And he put a, a robe around him, put sandals on his feet and a ring on him to indicate that you are still my son. And then he said, bring out the fattened calf and call everyone everybody, because let's have a party. We're going to have a party because this son of mine that was dead is alive again. This son of mine who is lost is found and we must celebrate. Folks, that is the perfect example of extravagant spending right there. And it's done through Jesus Christ for each and every one of us. You understand that when we come to our senses, we're sitting here right now, we're saying, man, these little things in my life, these are sins in my life. I'm in this ditch. I'm in this ditch. And, and the tendency is to, is to just try to hide it inside or, or bundle it up or excuse it or to push it away. No, we come to our senses. And when we come to our senses, don't crawl, try to crawl that ditch on your own. When you come to your senses, you just turn to Jesus and guess what you discover? He's running at you already ready to embrace you, rather ready to, to lavish you with love. If someone looked at my life, the course of my life, the things that I've talked about and the things that I will never talk about, the things that, that, that people know that are even on public records in some places and the things that are only in the records of heaven, what I rejoice in is that when people say and when the devil says that is wasted love on Chad Stewart, Jesus says, I don't care. I love him. I will spend anything to save him. And he says the same thing for you. The same thing for you. Brothers and sisters, many of us are prodigals. We need to come to our senses. We need to see our sin for what it is, a ditch of death that the, the devil is happy to keep us in. But if we come to our senses, we need to know this good news. You don't have to get out of the ditch on your own. You don't have to figure out your way home on your own. Jesus embraces you in that moment, just as you are. The verse says that while he was still a long way off, you know what I think about when I read that, when he is still a long way off? Here's what I think about. He hadn't got all his sins figured out. He didn't have a right understanding even of the character of God. He thought God was going to treat him like a servant, like a diminished person. He thought he was going to have to pay some consequence, that he was going to be rebuked in some way, that he was going to be scolded in some way. And a lot of you see Jesus in that way. You see God in that way. But the Bible tells us that while he was still a long ways off, God saw him. God saw him in his sin. God saw him in his struggle. And all God needed to see was that he was trying to come back. And God said, I'm ready. And he ran at him. He ran at him and John, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1 says that, that God did the most amazing thing. It says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And then it says this awesome thing, for that is what we are. And that is what you are. Not by your works, not by your merits, because you're all prodigals and so am I but because of the grace of God, when we come to our senses and realize that in this scarred and ravaged world, there is only one grace that can save us. And that is the grace of Jesus Christ.
Brothers and sisters, I invite us to see our lawlessness, our prodigal ways, but then I invite you to turn to Jesus and to find him there ready to love you, ready to celebrate you, and ready to remember that even right now, just as you are, you are a child of God.